Well, before I pray, I am just want to let you know, I am not going to be here next week. Uh, Pastor Daniel is going to resume his sermons in the Psalms, but I want to make a plea, if I could, before I leave. Um, I'll be in South Carolina uh, visiting my mom, also celebrating our win over Mississippi State last night and Tennessee the following weekend. But uh, while I'm gone, uh, two weeks out on October the 8th, uh, Zach Carter's church, Redeemer Church, will be launching that afternoon at 4.30. And they have invited you to come and participate in that worship service. They would love for you to be there, but they need to know how many of us will plan on being there because they have a reception that will be following afterwards. Zach, is there information still in the back yet? Okay, there is. Not yet. Okay. But you can speak to Zach before you leave, and he'll make sure that you know how to, how to be able to come. And I want to encourage our members of Providence to be there. Uh, it's just exciting to have another sister church that without reservation, I could recommend someone to go to. Um, and I want to do everything I can to support such an endeavor. Uh, but I also want to support them materially. And if you can, take a little love offering with you uh, just to bless that church as they uh, begin launching out and and then it's at Providence Classical School is where they're meeting, 4.30, October the 8th. So please put that on your calendars uh, so that you can participate in that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you are doing in the world. Lord, it seems like things are in shambles when we look at it through human eyes. But then, Lord, we see the marvelous way in which you are working. That, Lord, you work through tragedies, you work through our own indecencies, Lord, to bring about knowledge of who you are so that we might worship you and glorify you and find salvation in Christ Jesus alone. We thank you for your great faithfulness to us because, Lord, we know this could not be manifest out of our own heart, but it has to be you, the unchanging God, who is speaking truth to us always so that we might rely upon it. We pray, Lord, that in this service, that you would work among us, and that in the midst of it, Lord, we would walk out a transformed people who have faith to rely upon you more and more. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you have been following along in this series on the book of Genesis, then you know I've had this propensity to give the titles of our sermons the names of songs and popular music. I've done this not to be clever, but to show that even our modern poets, those that we hear consistently on the radio, can observe the human condition. And today's sermon is no different, but it might be a little obscure for you. When Lisa and I were dating, I got into Van Morrison. The writer of Into the Mystic and Brown-Eyed Girl became a Christian. And he wrote songs like, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You, to his wife. And then also the top ten song with Bruce Cockburn, Whenever God Shines His Light on Me. And on the same album was a song that resonated with me in those days called, When Will I Ever Learn to Live in God? And in one of the verses, Van Morrison asked within that song, When Will I Ever Learn to Trust in God? It conveys the same sentiment of the Baptist preacher Robert Robertson, his great hymn when he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
Those of us who are Christians are the first to admit that we are not perfect and that we blow it all the time. And it leaves us just hanging our heads and asking the question, the same question over and over again, when will I ever learn to trust in God rather than in my own devices? Today's story in Genesis chapter 20 is an example of that. Please turn there in your Bibles. Again, this is on page 14 of your pew Bible. Now, back in chapter 17 and 18, Abraham has been portrayed as a righteous man ever since his and Sarah's mistake of using Hagar as a surrogate for their first child. And in chapter 17, Abraham believes God's promise of a future heir to the point of circumcising all the males within his household as a sign of that belief. In chapter 18, Abraham is seen as the noble host for three angels and as a sensitive human being willing to intercede on behalf of the people of the Jordan Valley when he learns of God's plan to destroy them all for their iniquity. And we saw in chapter 19 that Lot and his daughters are spared due to their relationship with the righteous Abraham. So surely by this point in the story, the Lord's chosen human has learned to trust in him, right? Well, as we've heard already in our scripture reading, that is not the case. Both Abraham and Sarah still choose to rely on human cunning rather than on God. So let's look back and review Genesis chapter 20, and through it, let's examine the situation that Abraham got himself into. And let's see what happens with the three primary characters here, those of God's intervention, Abraham's justification, Abimelech's reconciliation, and then the resolution of this story. So if you're making an outline, we have the situation this couple got into, God's intervention, Abraham's justification, Abimelech's reconciliation, and then we'll look at the results of all of this. Well, let's begin with the situation that Abraham got himself into. Abraham moves from Hebron to the southern boundary of what will later be the nation of Israel, to Gerar, a Philistine city. Now, we're not told why he did this, But the narrator tells us that he sojourned in Gerar, meaning he was seen as a visitor to the region, dwelling there temporarily. And in verse 2, Abraham once again introduces his wife Sarah as his sister. And we're told that Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for and took Sarah into his own harem. There's a lot that we need to cover in just these two verses as we set up what transpires next. First, If you remember, it wasn't all that long ago that Abraham and Sarah used this same scheme with Pharaoh in Egypt back in chapter 12. They told the king of Egypt that Sarah was Abraham's sister rather than his wife. And as we'll discover in verse 12, she is Abraham's half-sister, either by another mother or through adoption. For the chosen couple, that was only 15 years prior to this point when Pharaoh chose Sarah to join his harem due to her beauty. And God rescued Sarah from that situation supernaturally. This was likely a story that Abraham and Sarah concocted to preserve his life whenever they moved from territory to territory. Verse 13 suggests that too. Second, we'll see the same name, Abimelech, often mentioned with the Philistines throughout the Bible. Abimelech is most likely a title rather than a proper name. It means, my father is king. 
So don't get confused when you see it in multiple time periods. Even when David confronts the Philistines almost a millennia later, there will be a Philistine called Abimelech whom David acts insane in front of. And David will even compose Psalm 34 because of it. And third, Sarah's beauty is not mentioned this time around. At this point, she is 90 years old. Now, this isn't to say that she isn't beautiful, but most likely the reason that Abimelech took her was political. By marrying Abraham's sister, in quotations, he was making an alliance with a wealthy figure that had moved into his territory. Remember, by this time, Abraham had many men and many possessions. Abimelech would have seen this as his right to take Abraham's unmarried sister as his bride in exchange for Abraham dwelling in his land. By marrying Sarah, Abimelech would have been keeping peace between the local inhabitants and these powerful and wealthy strangers who were sojourning in his land. Now, this was not uncommon of a practice for the time period. But Sarah features prominently in the story. The word wife is used eight times in this chapter. Abraham and Sarah have once again jeopardized the promise in chapters 17 and 18 that the chosen race will be born from Sarah's womb. So God intervenes in a dream of Abimelech. Dreams are a common way that God spoke to his servants in the ancient world. He'll speak to Jacob in chapter 28 in a similar manner. But there is no need for God to use dreams now as we have his perfect word to speak to us. The Bible is much better as as an objective authority than a dream. I would say that if one is given a dream from God, then the truth of that dream must be confirmed in the scriptures. And this is the first of four instances in Genesis where God will speak through a dream to someone outside the chosen nation. And each time, the dream is a warning of what will happen. And this one's no different. Now, I have a feeling that all of us would be in fear if God appeared in your dream and said, behold, you are a dead man. Or behold, you are a dead woman. That certainly would get my attention just before I wet my pants. And God tells him why. Abimelech has taken another man's wife as his own. He has violated Yahweh's law according to Leviticus 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 22, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. And those verses say the penalty for such action is death. Therefore, the Lord is acting according to his holy character. He will not leave sin unpunished ever ever. Abimelech defends himself, stating that neither Abraham nor Sarah told him that she was his wife, only his sister. And he had not touched her to consummate the marriage. And we learn why in verse 6. It was because God restrained his sin. This is the Apostle Paul's point about common grace in Romans 2 and 3. If God had not restrained the sin of our hearts, imagine how horrid a society we would be living in. It is only by his common grace of writing the law upon our hearts that each human withholds acting upon his or her sin nature. Even Abimelech, this pagan, knows it's wrong at this instance to take another man's wife. 
Psalm 105, verses 12 through 15, confirms that God prevented further sin in this episode. Make no mistake, the reason that we do not take each other apart in this world is not because we have abundant self-control. Quite the opposite. It is due to the Lord God's restraint of our sin nature. And now there must be some restitution. In verse 7, God calls Abraham a prophet, in Hebrew, a nabi. This is the first time the word for prophet is used in the Bible. It conveys one who speaks on behalf of God. Abimelech must not only return Abraham's wife to him, but he also must have Abraham intercede for him in prayer if he wants this curse to be removed from him. And it's not until verse 18 that we find out that God had made all the women of Abimelech's household uh, infertile. If the king wants this condition to be remedied, and he doesn't want to die, he must repent and make restitution to Yahweh's servant. So the next morning, in verse 8, Abimelech acts. He calls together the men of his city, and he reveals the dream, and they too are afraid. No longer will a marriage pact be necessary. The people of Gerar will fear Abraham and not seek to harm him because of his God. The king summons Abraham to come to him. Now, you may wonder why he wants Abraham to come before him rather than the other way around. It is because Abimelech wants to make this restitution public. He wants all the citizens to witness it and know that he has acted righteously. Abimelech asked Abraham, why have you done this when I have not sinned against you? And here, Abraham gives his justification for his actions. He did this because when he arrived in Gerar, He thought there was no fear of God in the city. Therefore, the people would do what they wanted and take his life because of his wife. Meaning, if they killed Abraham, Abimelech would marry Sarah anyway and inherit all of his possessions. And as part of his justification, Abraham states in verse 12, Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. As if that was truth enough. And Abraham says in verse 13 that this was their premeditated plan if they were ever put in this situation. So now Abimelech makes his restitution. He gives Abraham livestock and servants, increasing Abraham's wealth. He returns Sarah to him publicly and states before everyone that Abraham can live anywhere in his lands that he desires. And then he not only makes restitution to Abraham, he does also to Sarah. He gives Abraham a thousand pieces of silver. This was an exorbitant sum here incredibly extravagant. It was to show how serious he was when he declared that Sarah, that he had not touched Sarah. There's a little irony here. He calls Abraham in verse 16, your brother, not your husband, thus protesting his innocence in the matter before others. Restitution has been made. It was at this point that Abraham prays to Yahweh and God removes the curse from Abimelech's household. Once again, Abraham becomes an intercessor. He validates that the way of Yahweh in repentance is right, even though he did not act righteously. It is interesting that Abraham's prayer can open the wombs of Abimelech's household, but not Sarah's. Obviously, God is the one in control. He is the supreme character in the story, not Abraham. 
And now that we've come to the conclusion of chapter 20, let's take a moment to reflect on the results of what we've seen in this passage. There are three observations I'd like to make here. First, we should not detach this chapter from the previous two. In chapter 18, Abraham wondered in his heart if God would slay the innocent. Would he take out an entire city if 10 people were found righteous within it? And here we have an answer to that question. God does not strike down Abimelech. Though he was deceived by Abraham and Sarah's ruse, he did take what did not belong to him. And the Lord gave him a chance for repentance. The Lord does not indiscriminately destroy the wicked. He is always just in his dealings with mankind. Always. Our problem is like what we read in Romans 2, is that we presume upon his grace not his justice. As we learned last week, outside of the Lord Jesus, none of us are righteous, not even one. Second, we should see Abraham's state at the conclusion of the story. He is safe and sound. Abraham has moved into another section of the future promised land. And he is dwelling just as safe in this area as he was in Hebron. In fact, we'll learn a little later in the story that due to this event, he is viewed as the superior with whom those others will want to make a treaty. He is also richer now than he ever was before he entered Gerar. And God protected he and Sarah from jeopardizing the promised child in Isaac. No one will doubt Abraham's paternity when Isaac arrives. So despite his sin, Abraham is just as blessed and better off than he was before. Why? Why? Well, that leads us to our final observation, and one that is just as relevant for us today. The reason God is faithful and continues to bless Abraham is because he said he would be. It's because he said he would be. That's it. God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To date, that promise is held. When Abraham and Sarah pulled this same stunt with Pharaoh back in chapter 12, there was no promise at that time of an era through Sarah yet. But now that guarantee has been made known to both of them, Abraham in chapter 17 and to Sarah in chapter 18. And despite that precious prophecy, the two of them even jeopardize it with a ruse that God had already shown that he will prevail. And yet still, God intervenes and proves himself faithful. And the reason why is that God said he was going to do so. And he was going to do it. What Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. But this part is vitally important. Please listen to me. The reason Abraham is now wealthier and safer is not because of his faith. The adherents of a health and wealth gospel teach, well, if you just have enough faith, then God is going to bless you materially or physically. But obviously, Abraham demonstrated no faith in God's promises throughout this episode. 
If anything, he is better off despite his lack of faith. Again, why? Because God said so. If you will, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is found on page 995 of your pew Bible. Now, let me remind you the context of this letter. Paul is in prison. He has suffered immensely for the sake of the gospel. I dare say more than any one of us in this room. And he is encouraging his young friend Timothy to take this same yoke of responsibility upon himself, to be willing to suffer in the same way as the apostle. So what would motivate Timothy to endure? Knowing that sometimes he's going to succeed and other times he's going to blow it? What would he want to encourage Timothy in? Well, Paul would put it this way to his young protege, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And stop right there. Did Paul say, be strengthened, Timothy, in your intuition, in his personal power, or his strength of will? Did he say, be strengthened by the number of people in your church? Did he say, be strengthened in his material wealth? No, he said, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now look at what he is calling him to in this grace. Share in suffering, suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted in him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Now read that again. Why is Paul confident of success even though he is in prison? God's word. What the Lord decrees. What he says always prevails. Always. Verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Oh, look at this though, poor sinner. Christian who continues to mess up day after day after day. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's part of his character. His word is. It's who he is. 
The whole point of this is that Paul is resting on the promise of Jesus' salvation, the promise that he is blessed in Christ. Timothy was to remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David, just as God's faithfulness was demonstrated in Abraham's offspring, which later became Ruth's offspring, which later became David's offspring, who became Jesus Christ, who died for sin and is now risen, and he's seated on the right hand of God the Father ever interceding for the saints. This is a promise that you, Timothy, can bank on. And it's one that we can bank on. When Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, it was. Sin no more can be held against those that love him. When he said, those whom the Father give me are mine and no one can snatch them out of my hand, you can believe it. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, you can live your life based upon those words. And when he says in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, you better believe it. Because he is. The promises in Christ are always yes and amen. That deserves an amen. So believer, do not think that your sin is not heinous because it is. Just as bad as Abraham's and Sarah's. But you do not stand before God based upon something that you did or didn't do. You stand before God because of what Christ did for you at the cross. And God always keeps his promise. No one, no one, not even yourself, can take you from his hand. And friend, if you do not know this Jesus, you come to him. Because he says, those who come to me, I will no way cast out. It's hard to believe that God accepts filthy sinners like us, but he does in the righteousness of his son, Jesus alone. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You take him at his word because he never lies, ever. And you come to him on this day because I can guarantee you this. What Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how precious is your word. How precious are your promises to us. Lord, there are times that I confess in my own power, I fear man or fear events in this world more than I fear you. And because of that, Lord, I make poor choices. But Lord, you have made promises to us. You have said that you will prevail and that you will make all things new. And that includes our sinful souls. And because of that, Lord, I am going to rest on that. There's nothing that I can do, nothing, absolutely nothing that can make me right before you. Even on the way over here this morning, I'm sure as I was driving that I blew it with things that were going on in my thoughts. But Lord, I am not counting on me or anything that I do or not do to allow me to come into your presence. I'm going to do what every believer in this room is doing, and that is to count on the cross of Christ. As my friend Peter prayed earlier this morning, 
It is his atonement forever that we bank on, that we rest on, that Christ paid our sin penalty. And it is because of that we can do what the choir sang. Know that we are bound for the Canaan land. We will not be led astray because you promised that you would hold us. And we thank you for examples like Abraham, that even though he blew it, he shows us that you are still faithful to us even when we are faithless. So thank you for being the magnificent God that you are and write this truth upon our hearts. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.